0: By the time of the official end of the Western Roman Empire in 476 CE, most of mainland Southern Europe and France and England had been converted to Christianity. And because the Germanic tribes that migrated into the territory of the Romans and who would form the new kingdoms that replaced the empire had been converted as they crossed the borders or shortly after, Christianity retained a stranglehold on these areas. The only exception to the rule was England, where the Anglo-Saxons formed a new kingdom and had no interest in adopting the Christianity that had taken root there and retained their beliefs well into the 7th century. In the northern east of Europe though, things were quite different. Importantly, Germanic and Slavic European indigenous religion, beliefs and culture dominated east of the Rhine River, right up to the Kievan Rus and north of the Danube and right up into the Scandinavian Peninsula and Denmark. 700 years later though the situation had completely changed. By the 12th century we find the only remaining strongholds of European religion were clustered around the shores of the Baltic Sea in the northeast of the continent. Essentially these were the northern parts of Norway, Sweden, Finland and the territories of what are now the Baltic Republics of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania and westwards through Prussia and what is now North Poland or Pomerania as it's called and the northwest of what is now modern Germany. So what happened between 476 CE and the 12th century and when was northern Europe converted and how were these last pockets of resistance in the Baltic region eventually eliminated by an advance in Christianity? Well there had been active measures by the Catholic Church and the Franks after the end of the Roman Empire to pushed the religious border further and further east. But the 12th century was the definitive beginning of major Christian European attempts to destroy what was left of these last pagan strongholds, abolish pagan belief and force this population into Christianity in military actions which became known as the Northern Crusades. This imposition of an alien religion on the Baltic population would not be an easy task as these people had no interest in renouncing their practices and culture and therefore these crusades lasted almost 300 years and lithuania would have the privilege if you like of actually being the last european country to accept christianity and that was as late as the 14th century and in fact even this wasn't quite the end of non-christian europe as some of the Sami people in what is lapland in current day finland for example were still non-christian right up till the middle of the 18th century when determined efforts by Norwegian and Swedish Christians were made to stamp out their beliefs. So this video is really a precursor for future and much more detailed videos on aspects of the Northern Crusades but in this video I'm hoping to really just give a, a very quick background as to what was happening before the 12th century around that time and also a very quick overlook through the Crusades themselves and their aftermath. So why were these Baltic regions the last to fall to Christianity? Well let's take a a step back. Christianity 300 years after Christ was still only a minority religion. It's estimated only 5 to 10 percent of the population of the Roman Empire might have been Christian at that time. But once Constantine became emperor and the religion received official sanction and promotion and unlimited finance to build churches and cathedrals it began spreading more rapidly and much of the population of what was southern Europe and which formed part of the Roman Empire would be converted to Christianity either by persuasion pressure or threat of force or by the real use of force when Christianity was made the official religion of the empire and paganism was banned entirely in stages during the fourth century onwards and this importantly included much of Gaul or what in the present day we call France. After the fall of the Roman Empire, the big deciding factor for northern Europe was the conversion of the Franks. The Frankish tribe had settled in northern Gaul prior to the end of the Western Roman Empire and therefore had immersed themselves into a culture of Gallo-Roman Catholicism and over the next few decades they had uh, successfully captured large parts of southern and western Gaul as well. The important and key event for the Franks and the future of northern Europe came in 496 CE, only 20 years after the official end of the Western Roman Empire, when Clovis, the king of the Franks, was baptised into the Catholic faith due to the influence of his wife, a Catholic Burgundian princess. And the bulk of the Frankish aristocracy and people essentially quickly followed suit. And the A couple of centuries following Clovis, what's called the Merovingian period, allowed for a general consolidation of Frankish Catholic rule over much of France. And France would essentially now become the launching pad and springboard for the conversion of Northern Europe. And this was especially so during the Carolingian period, with a, a new ruling dynasty kicking off in 751 CE. Charlemagne, the son of Pepin the Short, the first Carolingian ruler, consolidated and strengthened Frankish control over existing territory and importantly began aggressively promoting Christianity in newly captured non-Christian territory to the east and north during the late 8th and early 9th centuries. Now this expansion into territory that is now modern day Germany wasn't easy and there was protracted conflict with the people there, resulting in what were called the Saxon Wars, where the Frankish armies advanced into provinces like modern-day Saxony. The Franks, all-powerful at this stage, had a a lot of religious zeal by this time, and therefore began to coerce the people in these areas to convert to Christianity. They would destroy the famous German pagan centre of worship at Ermansul in 772 CE, and in fact, Charlemagne ordered all existing pagan sites to be destroyed wherever they were found. But the German Saxons had no wish to convert and put up a stiff resistance despite their sacred groves and temples being razed to the ground in the wars against the Franks. Ten years later in 782 CE the refusal of the pagans to convert and submit to Frankish rule resulted in what was called the Massacre of Verdun where around four and a half thousand Saxon warriors were put to death. The Franks eventually proved too powerful and organized, and shortly after this, in 785 CE, Charlemagne issued his famous threat to the now-defeated Saxons to convert to Christianity or face the consequences. And in this declaration, called the Capitulation of Parts of Saxony, he ordered that, quote, if any one of the race of the Saxons hereafter concealed among them shall have wished to hide himself unbaptized, and shall have scorned to come to baptism, and shall have wished to remain a pagan, let him be punished by death, unquote. Overwhelmed by the Frankish armies the German Saxons were fully defeated and converted by 804 CE and during this time other pagan German areas like Bohemia, Thuringia, Bavaria and Corinthia and areas close to the Balkans were also annexed and the people converted under duress. The Franks had also advanced in the south against the powerful pagan nation of the Avars who had settled in the Hungarian plains in the Trans Danube area. By the year seven ninety six the Avars had also been defeated by Charlemagne and having been pacified, were now being converted as well. So these Frankish advances meant Charlemagne, by the end of his reign, had taken control right up to the River Elbe to the northeast, as well as up to the Hungarian plains to the southeast. And these Frankish campaigns against their immediate pagan neighbours essentially began the momentum that would continue on for several hundred years. These people after they had been converted would uh, a generation or two later then pile on pressure on other pagan neighbours to convert. So Christianity could be said to have spread during this period essentially using a, a domino effect. So let's take a look at how these dominoes fell. To the north of the Franks Denmark would officially convert to Christianity in 958 CE with the Danish king Harold Bluetooth banning pagan worship and ordering the forced baptism of all of his subjects. And just a few years later and to the east, Poland could be said to have converted in 966 when the Polish monarch Misko I was baptised, although the process of converting the population took many decades and as elsewhere there was a a strong reaction and rebellion during the 1030s, what was called the pagan reaction. The pagan reaction was a, a widespread counter to the imposition of this foreign Christian belief, although this didn't stop the newly Christian authorities from forcing the new belief on the population just before the end of the millennium, Prince Vladimir of the Kievan Rus converted and declared the Rus to be officially Christian. And soon after this, in the year 995, Olaf Tryggvason became king of Norway and aggressively promoted Christianity at the expense of the local beliefs. Tryggvason invariably used force to stimulate conversion to Christianity and was known to use execution and torture against those who didn't comply with his orders. At around the same time Sweden had its first Christian king, Olaf Konum. But again, there were violent clashes between pagans and Christians who were trying to prevent pagan practices, particularly in ending pagan worship at their holy places and sacred groves. So what this meant was that by the start of the new millennium, the only Europeans still holding out, staying resolutely non-Christian and and practicing their own indigenous beliefs, despite the attempts of various Christian missionaries over the previous several hundred years, were the Slavic people inhabiting the peripheries of the Baltic Sea. And as you can see on the map, this entire area was now completely encircled by Christian states. So who were these non-Christian Europeans of the 11th and 12th centuries? Well, let's take a quick look at the people of the southern Baltic area closest to the Frankish Empire and consequently most in danger. These people were the Wends who populated the area which now comes under the German states of Schleswig-Holstein and Mecklenburg. The Wendish term or Monica was really an umbrella term for several communities who lived in the area between the River Elbe and the River Oda. The Wendish people were a confederation of three main separate tribes. These were the Vagrians who lived to the west adjacent to the Elbe, the Abatrites near the River Oda and the Pelabians who lived further to the south but who collaborated with each other in terms of the Christian threat from the west. One of the main deities of the Wends as recorded by the 11th century chronicler Adam of Bremen and who they showed great attachment to was a, a god called Redigos. They also had a very important and famous temple to another important god as well, situated in the town of Arcona on the island of Rugia, which was just off the German coast and this drew many people from great distances apparently. The temple was dedicated to the god Swenterwit, who was the god of abundance and war. The Great Temple unfortunately was entirely destroyed by crusaders during the Wendish Crusade just like the other various temples, sacred groves and holy sites so there's nothing left to see there at the site unfortunately. The Wends were apparently an enterprising people who frequently raided their Christian tormentors to the west namely the Saxons and the Danes. They certainly weren't scared of the Christian powers and uh, would put up stiff resistance when the Christian onslaught began in 1147 CE. Christian sources generally paint these pagans as uncivilized and barbaric, but in many ways, the Wends were substantially more sophisticated and cultured than their christian neighbors to the west in culture trade and warfare and some of their practices and beliefs must have surprised and confused the many christian missionaries and monks who were traveling into the area to try and convert them in contrast to the wends the christian monks lived under authoritarian monarchies and in a feudal system where there was no middle class and where the serfs the vast bulk of the people had no say in issues affecting them and were practically slaves. But in contrast, in Wendish communities, women, unusually for that time, had the same rights as men. The Wends also had no monarchy and did not believe in the feudal system. Instead, they had a rough and ready form of democracy, which seemed to weld the various groups together and where each community had a council of elders, and this included both men and women. However, this form of democracy in an age of violence may have done them harm as they were frequently disunited because of differing opinions, while the Christians were invariably led by a a duke or a king who faced no such division and who had complete authority and command. The Wendish people also refused to exploit natural resources as the Christians did, leaving much ground untamed, saying they, they believed in the natural sanctity of the land and that who were they to change it? They engaged in trade, though, exchanging furs and other manufactured goods for cloth, etc. But they had no great fascination with gold and silver like the Christians. They were known for their high-quality metalwork as well. They were also known to show great hospitality. But as to be expected, this wasn't extended to missionaries and monks who they knew were coming to alter or destroy their culture. The pagan towns themselves were quite prosperous. We have for example a, a 10th century Arabic writer called Ibrahim ibn Jakub who described the pagan city of Walin on the mouth of the Oder river as extremely well laid out with a well-designed harbor. The city had wooden houses and streets laid out in a, a grid pattern with each square in the grid containing four buildings exactly, which was surrounded by well-made ramparts and fortifications. Adam of Bremen in the 11th century describes this pagan metropolis as, quote, one of the greatest of all cities of Europe, unquote, which was, quote, crammed with the goods of all the people of the north, unquote. The town was pretty cosmopolitan as well, with people from all places there for trade. Archaeologists digging up the old ruins have uncovered all sorts of trades that were going on in the town, including smithing, smelting, textile manufacture, shipbuilding, leatherwork, and many other activities. And of course there were Slavic temples to their gods in the town which were constructed in magnificent fashion. So when did the Baltic people begin to come under aggressive Christian pressure and missionary efforts as sanctioned by the Catholic Church and what led to this pressure? Well the first intrusions into these areas came as early as the 9th century with the Saxons to their immediate west having been defeated by the Franks and subsequently converted. Missionaries, including many from the converted Saxons themselves, now found that they could travel further east, trekking into the Baltic coastal areas much more easily. And this travel was made even easier when the Polish king converted. Now, these various baltic communities and nations were fiercely protective of their culture and didn't like christians being contemptuous of their beliefs as many of these overconfident christian monks and bishops who trekked into these areas found to their cost saint Adalbert of prague for example was killed by the prussian locals in 997 ce for criticizing the local beliefs another example was a chap called saint bruno of Querfurt in the year 1009 who rather foolishly began destroying statues of the local gods and demolishing sacred groves in the country of the lithuanians actions for which he was beheaded by the irate locals but it showed the contempt for indigenous belief and the overarching confidence the missionaries had in wanting to eliminate these practices so these early journeys by these individuals and others could be considered almost as recon missions for much more aggressive evangelization that was coming up in the next century and pressure was steadily building up through the 11th and 12th centuries with the catholic church being the main driving force to eliminate paganism across the river elbe a surviving example of this is the famous letter by the archbishop of magdeburg a chap called adelgott in 1108 ce to the princes and kings of nearby territories asking them to defend christians and christian land from pagans the bishop portrayed the the wends who were just across the river as bloodthirsty savages whose only motive was to attack christians and places of christian worship the bishop interestingly makes mention of the wendish god prepagala to who he alleged christians were being sacrificed to quote their priests moreover whenever they giveth themselves to revealing on the appointed days say our prepagala demands heads it is fitting to make sacrifices of this sort Prepagala, as they say, is Priapus and the shameless Belphegor. Then when the Christians have been beheaded before the altars of their idolatry, they hold basins full of human blood and say, yelling with horrible voices, let us keep the day of joy, Christ is vanquished, our most victorious Prepagala has triumphed. And in this way we ceaselessly either suffer or fear affliction, since we grieve that they always advance and have good success in all things and in place of the horrible sound of the heathens before Propagala, a song of joy may be sung there, and in place of the sacrifice from the spilling of Christian blood." According to Adelgott, it was strangely enough the Christians that had been suffering the most from the Wends, rather than the other way round. "...the most cruel heathens, men without mercy, have risen up against us, and have prevailed, and glorying in the evil of their inhumanity, they have profaned the churches of Christ with idolatry." They have destroyed the altars and they do not hesitate to perpetrate upon us things that the human mind shrinks from hearing. They very often rage against our region and sparing no one, they seize, kill and vanquish and afflict with exquisite torments. Some they behead and sacrifice their heads to their evil gods. Of others, after their entrails have been removed, they bind together the cut off hands and feet and mocking our Christ, they say, where is their God? Unquote. And he then accused the Wendish king and people of routinely torturing Christians and having an insatiable appetite for Christian blood and suffering. Some who have been raised on a gibbet in order to increase their suffering, they allow to prolong a a life that is more miserable than any death. Since while still alive, they perceive their own suffering as each limb is cut off and they are finally miserably eviscerated after the stomach is cut open. They skin many men alive and disguised by the skin cut off from the head, They invade the borders of the Christians and, falsely presenting themselves as Christians, they carry away plunder with impunity, Whether any of this human sacrifice just across the river was true was another thing, although you could probably understand some reaction judging by the treatment the Wends were getting from Christian slave traders searching for pagan men and women and children to sell in the slave markets of Christendom. They were seen as fair game not being Christians and therefore outside civilization to all intents and purposes. In fact the whole Baltic Sea with its association with non-Christian belief around its coast was called the Barbarian Sea in those times. Now this trade in pagan slaves was done all along the Slavic pagan area on an almost industrial scale. In fact the word Slav became synonymous with this activity and the modern word slave came to be derived from the word Slav and that tells you the huge scale of the problem that slavery was for these people as they faced the advancing front of Christianity. And as you can see what this meant was that the Wendish people who were just on the opposite side of the River Elbe to Frankish territory and therefore geographically the closest of the pagan communities took the main brunt of the aggression and by 1147 CE they'd lost a a sizable amount of territory. The Wendish overlord at that time Prince Niklot could only really watch as this steady stream of Saxons occupying Wendish lands became a flood. And to compound these problems, two local potentates of that area, Count Adolf II and Henry of Badirid, also took advantage and, and seized several Wendish towns around this time. Now Prince Nicolot had to do something, and he launched a preemptive raid of sorts into Christian territory. This However, only gave more excuse to the Christians to wage war against the Wends, and when the time came, this raid by the Wends would come in handy as a as an excuse for the declaration of a general crusade against all non-Christians across the Elbe River. In fact, Bernard of Clairvaux, who famously arrived in Germany around this time campaigning for a, a crusade against the Muslims in the Middle East, would... Make full use of this attack by Prince Nicolot to encourage crusading against the Wends for those who couldn't travel as far as the Middle East. Those people he said could earn the same merit by attacking the pagan Wends. Of the Baltic communities, the Pomeranian people to the immediate east of the Wends were the first to fall, converting just before the Northern Crusades kicked off in earnest. The Pomeranians were under threat of a a savage invasion by the Christian Poles and consented to convert in the year 1124 to ward that invasion off although it would naturally take a a fair amount of time for the rural population to follow suit and abandon their former beliefs what this meant was that the wendish people who lived immediately to their west were now surrounded on all four sides by christian powers looking to stamp out paganism and were therefore easily the most vulnerable of the non-christian communities all that was needed now to trigger off a full-scale invasion and a land grab of Wendish territory was official sanction from the Catholic Church. And that official sanction came in the middle of the 12th century when the Second Crusade was being organised against Islam, and which provided the major organised impetus and drive to attack and convert the Wends and the Baltic people at the same time. The Baltic area had escaped the attention of the Christian powers when the First Crusade had been organised in 1096 CE, The focus had been entirely on recapturing Jerusalem from Islam. But the Second Crusade, around 50 years after the First Crusade, proved very different. The Second Crusade was triggered by the fall of the city of Edessa on the 26th of December 1144 CE. Edessa was the capital of one of the new crusader states that had developed after the First Crusade. And therefore its fall caused a a major sensation in Europe. Shortly after the city's fall, ambassadors and messengers from the other three still-surviving Crusader states arrived in Europe with pleas to the Pope and the various Christian powers to organise another war against the Celtic Turks, who were the premier power in the Middle East. The Pope at this time, Eugenius III, on hearing the news, would issue a papal bull on the 1st of December 1145. This papal bull, titled Quantum Predacosaurus, called for a, a new crusade against the Muslims. It started off by pointing out how previous generations had sacrificed so much to capture Jerusalem. Quote, how much our predecessors, the Roman pontiffs, did labour for the deliverance of the Oriental Church. We have learned from the accounts of the ancients and have found it written in their acts. And how they, quote, congregating a very great army, not without much shedding of their own blood, the divine aid being with them, did free from the filth of the pagans, the that city where our saviour willed to suffer for us, and where he left his... Glorious sepulchre to us as a, a memorial of his passion, and many others which, avoiding prolixity, we refrain from mentioning. Unquote. And he went on to talk of the city's Christian past and the need to take it back from the Muslims. Quote, but now our sins and those of the people themselves requiring it, a thing which we cannot relate without great grief and wailing. The city of Odessa, which in our tongue is called Rahes, which also, as is said, once when the whole land in the east was held by the pagans, alone by herself served God under the power of the Christians, has been taken and many of the castles of the Christians occupied by them, meaning the Muslims, The Pope, firm in his belief that a crusade was required, would reissue the bull in March 1146 CE and he would remind King Louis VII and the French aristocracy in general who he was primarily aiming at of the achievements of the first crusade and in this declaration the pope offered remission of all sins for anyone willing to fight as well as protection for their family and property and possessions and anyone who died crusading was promised full absolution pretty much like the first crusade the chap he chose to preach and promote the crusade was bernard of clairvaux or rather saint bernard as he would later become Bernard, who we mentioned earlier, would find there was a a lot of enthusiasm in France and places like southern Germany, and he managed to recruit around 25,000 crusaders from these areas. But he didn't find the same enthusiasm in Spain. The Spanish were busy fighting amongst themselves and the Muslims already. And he also didn't have much luck in northern Germany either, where the population density happened to be much higher and where he was expecting to actually recruit a lot more than places elsewhere. Many of the people were reluctant, he noticed, to travel the large distances to the Middle East, but were enthusiastic about waging war on the pagans. Could they not instead earn similar merit by fighting the Wends across the River Elbe, the people asked Bernard. Bernard readily agreed to this, for the Wends were unbelievers, just like the Muslims, and so surely there was no difference in the two causes. If waging war on Muslims was just, then destroying paganism across the river was just as much if not more important. And in fact he used the recent raid by the Wendish overlord Prince Niklot to argue that the Wends had to be destroyed or or converted to protect Christianity and Christian people. And therefore a crusade against the Wends carried out concurrently with the crusade in the Middle East was entirely justified. Now when the news reached the Pope in Rome of the proposal for a a crusade against the Wends, he too showed enthusiasm and readily agreed to the idea, and so was set in motion the wheels of a movement which would end up destroying Baltic paganism. The Northern Crusades, as these wars in the Baltic would be called, had now received church sanction from the very top. Bernard of Clairvaux would famously declare to the crowds in Germany that quote, with God's help, they shall either be converted or deleted, unquote. In other words, they were either to be turned into Christians or or massacred and their lands taken. So in consequence, both crusades, one against the Seljuk Turks and another against the Baltic region, were planned pretty much simultaneously. The Pope would issue two separate bulls named Divine Dispensation. The first was issued on 5th October 1146 and called for a second crusade related to the war against the Muslims and specifically asking the Italian masses to join the struggle. But it was a second bull that legitimised war against the pagan bolts. This was issued on the 11th of April 1147 at Troyes, and called for a a crusade against the pagan Slavs. Anyone who could not travel to the Middle East could wage war closer to home against the pagans. In this ball, the Pope declared, quote, certain of you, however, are desirous of participating in so holy a work and reward and plan to go against the Slavs and other pagans living towards the north and to subject them with the Lord's assistance to the Christian religion. We give heed to the devotion of these men and to all those who have not accepted the cross for going to Jerusalem and who have decided to go against the Slavs and to remain in the spirit of devotion on that expedition as it is prescribed. We grant that same remission of sin and the same temporal privileges as to the crusaders to Jerusalem, unquote. This declaration then elevated any action against the Baltic people to the same status as the action against the Muslims in the Middle East and with the Saxon Germans already being urged by their Catholic clergy to wage war on the pagan Wends, the things began to move much faster and would result in what was called the Wendish Crusade in which Wendish power was destroyed. After the defeat and forced conversion of the Wends, the focus would move further eastwards pretty quickly into Prussia, Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania and further encouragement would be made by Pope Alexander III 25 years later and reinforced by his papal bull of 1171 CE addressed to the people and kings of Denmark Norway and Sweden this time calling on them essentially for a crusade against the Estonians challenging them to suppress the pagans there because of their resistance they were showing to Christianity he reminded them how the Germans were already punishing the Latvian pagans during the Livonian crusade that was already taking place Quote, we are deeply distressed and greatly worried when we hear that the savage Estonians and other pagans in those parts rise and fight God's faithful and those who labor for the Christian faith and fight the virtue of the Christian name. To gird yourself armed with celestial weapons and the strength of apostolic exhortations to defend the truth of the Christian faith bravely and to expand the Christian faith forcefully. The second and most important and interesting part of the bull was the annulment of any sins and crimes the man might have committed. Again on offer was an indulgence on top of a promise of one year's remission of sin to anyone who would take up the sword. Anyone who was killed in the fight against the pagans would receive full indulgence. In other words any sin they had committed would be wiped out in the presence of God. Quote, trusting God's mercy and merits of the apostles Peter and Paul we thus concede to those forcefully and magnanimously fighting these often mentioned pagans one year's remission of sins for which they have made confession and received a penance as we are accustomed to grant those who go to the Lord Sepulchre. To those who die in this fight we grant remission of all their sins if they have received a penance. Unquote. In order to try and persuade more crusaders to try their hand against the pagans the area where Estonia and Latvia now exist was Renamed Terra Mariana or Land of the Virgin Mary, and this was to encourage crusaders to destroy the pagan nature of the communities there. For how could the Land of Mary possibly be allowed to remain pagan? Another tactic was to put the pagans in the same bracket as the Muslims by using the same terms for them. The Christians fighting the Balts called them Saracens, the the term used for Arab Muslims, even though the Baltic people had nothing to do with the former. The use of the term was in a sense psychological to render the same fighting zeal that crusaders had in the Middle East against the pagans. This term possibly went into currency in the year 1211 CE when the Holy Roman Emperor Otto IV called the pagan Saracens and described them as, quote, enemies of Christianity, unquote. And as you can see from the table, the Northern Crusades, not surprisingly since they kicked off during the Second Crusade, pretty much mirror the Middle Eastern Crusades in terms of time frame. The northern crusades would span around 300 years before the last pagan kingdom of the Lithuanians accepted Christianity. The big difference I suppose is that the northern crusades were ongoing conflicts happening year in year out in both major and minor clashes rather than the much grander and larger scale crusades of the Middle East, which happened in specific time frames. So while this chart shows the various northern crusades, it's important to remember these were only the major expeditions and they were numerous smaller expeditions interspersed between these larger ones almost on an annual basis and in fact these northern crusades would have a, a fairly heavy impact on the middle eastern crusades in many ways some christian communities like the danes the the swedes to their north and of course the north germans in places like saxony lost interest in the main crusades as there was far more to gain much closer to home in terms of territory The Danes would be particularly active against the Baltic people and in fact later these North Germans, Swedes and Danes would be joined by the relatively newly converted Poles to the south who were already eyeing Wendish territory and uh, who also saw a chance to eliminate the pagan beliefs of the people there. So there were major differences between the Northern Crusades and the much more well-known Middle Eastern Crusades. Firstly and foremost, these crusades were unashamedly campaigns to eradicate paganism rather than push back Islam. In the Middle East, there was little effort made to convert the Muslims to Christianity. They were simply seen as the enemy that had to be defeated. In the Baltic, however, the pagans were seen as barbaric people who needed to be converted and saved from idolatry and superstition. The second difference was that there there was no Christian holy site in danger in the Baltic area. In the Middle East Jerusalem was under control of the Seljuk Turks who had conquered much of Byzantine Christian territory. In fact the Byzantines had specifically asked for military help in the aftermath of the Battle of Manzikut in 1071 CE as Turkish Seljuk forces began approaching Constantinople itself so the crusades to the Middle East could be argued as defensive in nature to some extent and and an effort to retake Christian holy sites captured by Islamic states. But in the north of Europe this was never the case. There was no deliberate occupation or advance by large pagan armies onto Christian soil from the Baltic region. And that neatly leads us on to the third difference which was that these northern crusades were largely an excuse by the various Christian powers i.e. the German kingdoms, the, the Danes, the Swedes and the Russians for conquest to capture new territories to colonize with their own people population in western europe and in fact the middle east was increasing rapidly and would in fact continue to increase right up till the advent of the black death in 1346 200 years later in contrast the baltic sea area was much more sparsely populated compared to the Heavily populated centres of South and West Europe, and where the local population survived on subsistence farming and hunting. In these circumstances, and with land becoming more scarce, the Christian population felt they could rightly grab land from people who they felt were merely heathens. By the year 1000, many Saxons on the west side of the River Elbe, who had been Christians now for several generations, began to migrate and grab land and various towns and villages from the Wends, who were the closest pagan community and this process only accelerated during the 11th to the middle of the 12th century. Much of the area around the Baltic coast as well as places further south like Hungary, Slovenia, Slovakia, Poland, the the Czech Republics, which were formerly Slavic populations, in consequence would now have a heavy mix of German blood instead. As German people moved eastwards to take up land taken from the defeated and converted Slav inhabitants, who themselves became either serfs or essentially second class citizens with their land holdings taken over and possessed by German settlers instead. And you could compare this eastward movement and land grab to pretty much what happened in America, for instance, in the 19th century with Europeans pushing back the American Indians ever westwards. In fact, the Germans have a term Ostsiedlung, literally meaning east settling for this mass migration and annexation of Slav territory. And it was the same further north where the Danes and Swedes began to annex territories in Lapland, Finland and Estonia and elsewhere, becoming the new land-owning class there. The Baltic Sea was an ideal channel for trade, and these areas were also rich in natural resources, fish stocks and so forth. So, in fact, the, this area would later dominate trade, with the cities all along the Baltic shore joining what was called the Hanseatic League, one of the first trading organisation blocks in Europe. In terms of terrain and local conditions as well, there was a big difference. Instead of the arid desert waterless conditions of Palestine that the other crusaders had to deal with, in the Baltic area there was an equally harsh but very different situation with extreme cold snow and marshy land and frequently forested areas where it was difficult for cavalry to negotiate and movement was difficult. The Battles themselves were fought frequently on the icy wastes and frozen rivers and lakes of the area. In fact, the crusaders preferred waging war during the winter as the frozen lakes and marshes, which turned rock solid in the the cold, made travel much easier for their heavy warhorses and carts and wagons. In summer, the marshy ground was entirely unsuitable for horses and made the issue of logistics much harder. One of the things that was common to the Northern Crusades and the Middle Eastern Crusades was the scale of brutality and ruthlessness during the conflict. The pagans knew a lot was at stake. and It wasn't only their religion and way of life that the crusaders would destroy, it would be their liberty as well. The pagans would effectively be reduced to slaves and, and second-class citizens as the Germanic knights of the Teutonic Order and other German settlers to these lands became the new aristocracy and landowners. The crusaders rarely took prisoners unless the pagans agreed to convert, mainly executing the pagan warriors they took prisoner. And villages were looted with women and children, if lucky escaping into exile in Lithuania, but if not so lucky taken as slaves to be sold off in the slave markets. So mass killing, genocide if you like, and enslavement were the order of the day as far as the crusaders were concerned. And prisoners were rarely taken. Meanwhile the pagans if they caught crusaders delighted in sacrificing them to their gods and then burning the bodies in revenge. A classic case of this is after the battle of Krakon in 1249 CE when a, a large group of knights attacking pagan territories surrendered but the enraged Natangian tribe whose land they were invading took full revenge. They massacred 54 of the knights, some being tortured or killed in religious ceremonies in temples in front of their gods, although they saved others who were later ransomed. A good description of the everyday kind of violence and brutality in war was written by Henry of Livonia. It concerned a mission by a Christian force against the pagans of Estonia. Quote, then the army spread into all the roads and villages, killed many people in every spot, and followed the remainder into the adjoining provinces – captured from them their women and boys and reassembled at the fort. On the following day and the third day, they went out and laid waste everything and burned what they found and took horses and innumerable flocks. For the latter, there were 4,000 oxen and cows, not counting horses, other flocks and captives of whom there was no count. Many of the pagans, moreover, who escaped through flight to the forests and the ice of the sea, perished in the freezing cold. Unquote. And this kind of warfare would go on year after year in the freezing cold until the pagans were annihilated or the ones that were left capitulated and converted. Any prisoners who were taken didn't necessarily survive as Henry described. Quote, they beheaded all the men whom they had brought along as prisoners in order to take vengeance upon those lying and unfaithful nations, meaning the pagans. They divided the spoils and together they praised him who is always blessed, unquote. Another prominent example came in 1210 when the crusaders tried to use pagan prisoners as a bargain encounter for the surrender of a fort. Henry of Livonia described the event. Quote, if you will renounce the worship of your false gods, said their leader Bethold, and will believe with us in the true God, we will return these captives alive to you. We will accept you in the charity of our brotherhood and will join you to us in the bonds of peace. The pagans would listen to nothing about God or the Christian name they prepared themselves for war and with their shouting, they jeered and mocked at the army. The Christians, however, having taken all the captives and slaughtered them, threw them into the moat and threatened to do the same to those who were in the fort, unquote. Another tactic of the Christians was the use of captured pagan children. These children were taken as hostages from communities which had agreed not to war against the crusaders. The Bishops of these areas would then take boys from the pagan aristocratic families, sometimes batches up to 30 at a time, while other pagan children were taken from the slave markets set up in these areas. These children were then brought up as Christians and given a religious education, ordained as Catholic priests and then sent back to work on converting their own people. These children, knowing the language of their people, were thought to be more effective at converting the locals. And we have one example mentioned in sources of a pagan boy in northern Estonia who was brought up as a Christian by the Bishop of Riga and he was given the name of John and later known as John of Werland, and uh, who was then sent back to convert his own people. Now this was a a dangerous activity and you could understand the locals being irate at their own children being used against them. John Werland himself had an unfortunate ending the angry Estonians cutting off his head and then cutting up his body in small pieces. Talking of sources I just want to mention several key contemporary or near contemporary primary sources we have on the subject that anyone wanting to read about the northern crusades might want to check out. The first is what's called the Chronicle of Henry of Livonia and this was written by a a Catholic priest called Henry or Henricus de Lettis in Latin around 1229 CE and who happened to be in Estonia during its conquest by the Crusaders. And it is, in fact, the oldest surviving source we have on Estonia and Latvia. It's an eyewitness account of the military actions, the politics and the machinations that occurred, and the people that lived in these places. So, an extremely important first-hand resource. The second main source we have is the work by Saxo Grammaticus, written circa 1200 CE on the history of the Danes, or... Gesta uh, denorum in Latin which of course includes the northern crusades as the Danes as well as the Germans played a, a major part in the expeditions to Livonia. Saxo Grammaticus was a historian and theologian who explores Danish history from the very earliest times to the 12th century. The third interesting source is that written by Peter of Duisburg, who was a, a priest and in his book Chronicle of the Land of Prussia. Written circa 1326, he gives a good account of the Teutonic Order and the Old Prussians, i.e. the original inhabitants as opposed to the German settlers. The book was written on behalf of the Grand Master of the Teutonic Order at that time. And finally, I'll just mention one more important work, and that's the Chronicle by Arnold of Lübeck. This piece of work was originally begun by a a Saxon priest called Helmholt of Bosnau. Arnold himself was an abbot in Lübeck and this work is a a good source on German activity in both the Middle Eastern Crusades as well as the Northern Crusades and the religious and financial interests involved in these ventures. And there are more but these should get anyone interested in the subject a, a good basic grounding and in fact I'll be using these accounts and others as sources for future videos on the Northern Crusades. In terms of modern works, undeniably the best book on the subject and which covers the whole crusading period from the middle of the 12th century right up to the end of the crusading period in the 16th century is the one by Eric Christensen called, uh, appropriately, The Northern Crusades. First published in 1980 and it's well worth a read although it's quite dense and perhaps not the best book if you're just wanting to dip your foot in the water as it were on the subject. Perhaps the best strategy would be to do a bit of research on the Crusades first on the internet and uh, so you have a bit of grounding on the topic beforehand. One drawback of the book is that it covers a lengthy 400-year period and several theatres of the conflict in the Baltic, so it goes through a lot in a a short space of time. But if you do want an overall and really comprehensive account of these events, then it's probably the go-to book on the subject. And it is well-written and does engage the reader, as long as you can keep up with the many names and places mentioned. pretty sure this book is going to be difficult to beat, and of course uh, I'll leave links to the books below if anyone fancies going through them. The Northern Crusades certainly destroyed pagan beliefs as state and cultural religions and uh, effectively made Europe a, a Christian stronghold for the next 700 years. And of course, these being purely Catholic crusades by Catholic powers, it meant that the border between greek orthodox church and catholicism and later after the reformation protestant europe was pushed much more eastwards than it had been in the early medieval ages in fact some of the military actions developed into pretty much a full-blooded crusade against the russian greek orthodox as the catholics had a desire to convert the russians too into catholicism sadly much of the slav culture was lost in these ventures although languages and other remnants of the culture and belief did survive as an example i I did read somewhere that the language of the old pagan prussians was still extant surprisingly till around the beginning of the 18th century in certain locations before it died out so in a lot of senses and in contrast to the much more famous middle eastern crusades the northern crusades were actually much more successful from the christian perspective and the effects of this aggressive expansion are still with us today Finally, in certain areas, the non-Christian European beliefs and religions do seem to be making a comeback. For instance, in Lithuania, what's called the Remover movement is trying to bring back the Lithuanian indigenous belief back into the mainstream. The movement is trying to piece together the traditions and customs and folklore that existed before Christianity was uh, enforced on the general population. And this movement really took root as far back as the 19th century. In 2001, the Remover movement had around 1,200 followers. In 2011, the census in Lithuania showed there were more than 5,000 followers, more than the 3,000 Jews in the country whose religious beliefs are officially accepted. So the movement is growing in strength. The Remover movement has chosen the tree as a symbol of the organization, and the name itself, Remover, comes from An old pagan Baltic temple which is mentioned in medieval sources from Prussia. The word itself means temple or or sanctuary or code of inner peace. And it's a similar situation in other Baltic republics. In Latvia, for example, there is what's called the Dievtari community which is also growing. Dievtariba means beholding God. The problem that both Latvian and Lithuanian communities during the 20th and early part of the 21st century faced was that these beliefs did not have the official status of religion and pagan marriages and baptisms were not given the same official status as Christian, Jewish and Muslim baptisms and marriages were. And to make matters worse, the Catholic hierarchy in these countries were actively blocking and organizing a a strong opposition to the recognition of pagan beliefs in the country, their way to acceptability and their bid to gain official status. And this vigorous opposition to pagan beliefs was still active up to the present times amongst the local Catholic organizations and church. So in 2018, when Pope Francis visited the Baltic states, several of the pagan movements, including the Dievturi and Remover communities, would protest against the Christians and the Catholic Church for preventing the recognition of their Baltic beliefs. And they sent an open letter to the Pope asking him to stop the Catholic authorities in their countries from being so obstructive quote we sincerely hope that while you visit you will urge the brothers and sisters of your religious beliefs to respect our own religious choice and cease impeding our efforts to achieve national recognition of the ancient baltic faith unquote they also wanted the usage of the term pagan to be discontinued by christians as the term was quote loaded with centuries of prejudice and persecution unquote so let's hope the Catholic authorities uh, relent in their opposition and allow these original Baltic beliefs to flourish. Anyway, I hope this video acted as a, a primer for the subject, and if you like this video,